Welcome to welcome to Progressive News Network, the progressive voice for the sunshine state of Florida and now the show me state of Missouri and beyond. Well, this week our executive producer Brooke is a little down with the weather, down uh, not feeling well this week. So I'm going to do my best to try and fill in. This is Janine Moloff, your host for tonight. And we have a couple of stories that I think you guys are going to find interesting. All right, so bear with me. Um, of course, to start out with, it's COVID, COVID, and more COVID. Uh, just when you thought you had heard all you needed to hear about the incompetence, about the shortages of PPE, the shortages of vaccine now, and so on and so forth, well, it gets worse. But that's okay. We're going to talk it through. So we're going to talk first about the COVID vaccine shortages versus what I think and what lead economist Dean Baker thinks, the real culprit patent monopolies for big pharmaceutical. So here we go. You know, as national shortages of COVID vaccines have dominated the news cycle, we've yet to question the dominant narrative that just blindly accepts the claims of big pharma and the medical pros and the news pros who are in their direct employment. So Center for Economic Policy and Research, or CEPR, lead economist Dean Baker, he doesn't accept those generic excuses. Baker, instead he explains along with others that the shortages, first of all, didn't have to happen. And they definitely could have been reduced if not prevented outright if one condition had been met, and we're going to be talking about that, if the U.S. had abandoned the automatic issuance of patent monopolies to big pharmaceutical corporations who happen to manufacture the vaccine. So that's our lead story. Notice I said these are big pharmaceutical corporations who manufactured the vaccine. They only did part of the research. As we'll learn tonight, a good part of the research was actually paid for on the public dime through the National Institute of Health. So that's our lead story. Secondly, I want to offer, I, I, I want to give a few previews of what's to come in future programming in my weekly justice report when I'm not trying to anchor this fill in. The sorry state of vaccine distribution, not only in the home state of Florida, but in my home state of Missouri and the media blackout. So while Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been outed by the media for playing games with the vaccine and punishing anyone who dares criticize his majesty. Trump acolyte Governor Mike Parsons in Missouri has escaped media scrutiny. Why? It's a good question. We're going to talk about that, and that's, that's going to be an ongoing story, all right? We're just going to touch upon it tonight. And then finally, you know, as a proud, unapologetic progressive, I want to offer my feeling from the passing of radio shock jock Rush Limbaugh. We've heard a lot of things in the media, on Facebook and other social media, where especially affluent white liberals say we shouldn't, we shouldn't celebrate Rush's death. It's bad form. It makes us look bad. And these people probably mean well. But let's face it, Rush Limbaugh was an enormous propagandist. He was Fox before there was Fox. He helped pave the way for a monster like Donald Trump. And the two communities that have suffered the most under this 
have been communities of color and women because both groups carry their identity with their physical appearance. Neither group can pretend or pass as a white man. Okay, it's just the truth. So we're going to get into it right now. So let's start with our first story. The problem with vaccine distribution and other vital medical needs during a pandemic, it wasn't just Trump. And I, I'm telling you, it's a lot of fun to blame everything on Donald Trump. Personally, I hope he's listening. I hope he knows how much he's despised and how much many of us, myself included, are praying that he is the subject of multiple criminal investigations. But that's another story. But it wasn't just Trump. It was the entire patent research versus what's called open research models, or as economist Dean Baker explained, how we are, quote, killing for inequality. And it's true. You know, we did earlier a series back in March and April um, that I titled hashtag not dying for Wall Street. This is a continuation. And Dean Baker said it really well, killing for inequality. We know that there is not only environmental racism in this country, but there's also medical racism. So with national shortages of COVID vaccines have dominated the news, news cycle, we're, we haven't questioned this, and we need to. Okay, so we're a few months into the release of multiple COVID vaccines in the U.S., and the rollout, ironically dubbed by the Trump administration Operation Warp Speed, uh, has been so slow, you would have thought the U.S. was a third world nation. In fact, it, it would make a snail blush. That's how slow it was, and still is. And the sad truth Again, it's nothing, it didn't have to happen this way. So, in an article written October 11, 2020, right before the Vaccine Act rollout, from the Center for Economic Policy and Research, or CEPR, lead economist Dean Baker wrote in an article titled, Waiting for a Vaccine, Killing for Inequality. Perfect title. And so Dean Baker goes on and says, basically, you know, he's been harping on the idea that China will probably mass produce and distribute a vaccine before we do, at least a month, maybe several months, and that this should make all of us incredibly angry. He also went on to explain that even a month's delay would, would probably lead to tens of thousands of avoidable deaths and hundreds of thousands of avoidable infections. And he also went on to say that if the delay wound up being many months before people were vaccinated, um, it would be far worse. And, and it's true. In fact, I believe it was New York University um, published an, a study oh, a few months ago. And in it, this was when the death toll was, I think, what, three, in the 300,000, something like that. And they said that uh, if the Trump administration had followed the established medical protocols and set the example and demanded the people mask and socially distance at the very least, approximately, what was it, 40, 50% of those deaths could have been prevented. And then just this past week, multiple panels of doctors published a study in a, the most, in a very prestigious medical journal known as The Lancet. And in the Lancet study, they also said that had the Trump administration followed proper protocols, approximately some 40% of deaths to date could have been prevented. That's almost half. In fact, today we crossed the 500,000 mark. It's a sad day. On the 21st day 
of the uh, of the 21st year of the 21st century. We have now lost 500,000 Americans from COVID and at least close to half of those deaths were entirely preventable. I'm not talking vaccines at this point. We're just talking following medical protocols, but let's get back to the vaccine. So Dean Baker saying even a month's delay would have meant a lot of deaths. And so he talks about the problem. He talks about patent monopoly financing versus open source. I know that sounds a little confusing, so he just outlines it. And he also explains that the Trump administration, to use his words, explicitly, quote, explicitly turned the development of a vaccine into a race, end quote. And he did. And that's why they called it Operation Warp Speed. And Trump committed more than $10 billion of public funds. And this was supposed to develop vaccines and, treat, and treatments as well for COVID. Now, there were several forms of funding in Operation Warp Speed. Several companies received upfront funding where they were paid for um, vaccine and, yes, treatments. Everybody forgets about that little detail. Upfront, they were paid for it, you know, right before anybody received anything. But those same companies are relying primarily on advanced purchase agreements for an effective vaccine. So Pfizer signed a contract, and that contract committed the government to buying 100 million doses for $1.95 billion. That's a little under $20 a shot if it, gets, if it comes up with a successful vaccine. Moderna relied mainly on upfront funding, getting money at the beginning. They were paid $483 million for preclinical research and phase one and two trials. But Moderna was also paid another $472 million to cover uh, any cost for phase three trials. So after largely picking up Moderna's development cost, the government also allowed Moderna to have a patent monopoly on its vaccine. So that means the taxpayer will be paying Moderna twice, first with the direct funding and then a second time, which would allow the Moderna to charge monopoly prices on its vaccine. Now, Dean Baker also pointed out, because he is an equal opportunity harasser, and that's why I like him, he's fair. Um, he also pointed out there was little to no, what he calls visible opposition from either Republicans or Democrats in Congress. Okay, and we could have done something much better. We could have taken a different route, according to Dean Baker. And that was, we could have pooled our research, not just at a national level, but internationally. And that would mean several things. And here they are. And I quote, this would mean that, quote, all research findings would be posted on the web as soon as possible, number one. Number two, any patents would be placed in the public domain. Number three, everyone could take advantage of them, okay? And what this pattern of mutual cooperation, it, it, it's critically important. And it was happening in the early days. Trump chose to make it a race for profit. And so that's what we're stuck with now. And so when we say that it would be public, all the findings would be public and patents would be in the public domain. In other words, it would be based on who came up with the best with the best vaccine, the best treatments. And 
you know, you'll hear a lot of economists saying, well, what's the incentive then for big pharma? Well, especially if they don't get a patent monopoly. Dean Baker explains it very simply. They would be getting paid for actual product, for doing a job instead of getting paid twice for maybe doing a job. And so, again, remember, this is for developing vaccines and treatments. And they would be, so basically the incentive is that they would want to continue to get paid, but if they went several months and they had nothing to show, they wouldn't be paid. Right now, they're getting paid whether they come up with something or not. Dean Baker put it as, this is just, quote, the idea of working for money. I thought that most economists were familiar with it. When it comes to financing drug research, they seem to view it as an alien concept, end quote. So, you know, again, he points out that Germany, for instance, is an economy that's one-fifth the size of the U.S. economy. And pointing out how they, under a public agreement, they would commit $2 billion, China would commit a proportionate amount, and so on and so forth. And that would be putting all the best minds together to come up with the best solutions. All right. It would also mean, though, in open research, that whoever comes up with a good vaccine, that as a people, we could manufacture on spot in your own state vaccine and distribute it in state. We wouldn't have these big blockages waiting for things to be transported. You know, people would have the formula, they'd get the equipment, and we could literally produce vaccine on site, we wouldn't have to wait, okay? The only thing they'd have to do is make sure they meet FDA standards, which is something that, of course, we would want. If we had gone this route, for instance, and if Chinese vaccines had been shown to be safe and they were before ours, we wouldn't be waiting, okay? But, this system still leaves a problem for developing countries who don't have manufacturing capabilities. But to, to quote Dean Baker, quote, at least intellectual property concerns would not be preventing people from getting a vaccine or treatment, end quote. So open research and inequality, they go hand in hand, okay? Dean Baker calls out not only the Republicans, but he calls out the mainstream Democrats and even progressive leaders like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and AOC, because they didn't, not any of them, they didn't push for, open, for an open research response to the pandemic. None of them, not even those three. And if they had, we might have a vaccine more quickly. I know there's a lot going on, but it's important. He went on, Dean Baker also went on to say that if we had open research, it could potentially save us $400 billion a year on prescription drug spending. And that's according to CEPR. And that savings would be more than twice the size of the Trump tax cut. Now, patent monopolies and inequality. Patent monopolies have a stranglehold, and they have a lot to do with the state of inequality, especially medical inequality. You know, we're told that technology, the cost of technology is really the culprit. It can't be helped. It's the cost of doing business, except it's true up to a point but it's been exaggerated. A lot of the, exception, a lot of the uh, extra cost has been because we have allowed, designed and allowed patent and copyright laws to be so stringent 
that some people become very rich at the expense of everyone else. And Bill Gates is a perfect example. Okay? Bill Gates didn't create anything. He didn't create Windows. A lot of us have heard the dumpster diving story. He took junk codes that had been thrown out. And at that time in Silicon Valley, everybody knew it. But Daddy had a good attorney, and he got a patent copyright, a patent monopoly, and sold it to businesses. And he's rich because of it. Okay, that's it. Patent, patent monopolies are the problem. So look at it this way. If you want to combat medical inequality, then you have to look at how politicians just ignore the fact that when we design, quote, a pandemic healthcare research plan that both slows research progress and gives more money to those at the top, then a state of healthcare inequality is maintained. Okay? Dean Baker is really speaking to how healthcare or medical inequality was engineered that way. And it was engineered as a product of Wall Street. Wall Street being the ultimate vampire. Okay, people at the top get money and everybody else pretty much suffers. Dean Baker also talks about how it would be great to have progressive taxes. Bernie's talking about it, it definitely needs to happen. But he also went on to say, quote, but it is even better to structure the market so that we don't have so much inequality in the first place, end quote. And Dean Baker goes on to say, because it all goes together, quote, if the minimum wage had kept pace with productivity since the 1968 peak, okay, it would be $24 an hour today. Not $15 an hour, $24 an hour. That is a big difference, folks. And, you know, once again, we have a system that is so horribly rigged. And now, because we have a pandemic and it's an airborne virus, we can't get vaccine to people. We can't get vaccine to people because, once again, all these delays work to profit, work basically to produce more profit for big pharma and others. Okay? And Dean Baker has more information about that in Chapter 5 of his book, Rigged. Okay? And he talks about how this system can be structured um, in, in a different way, okay? So Dean Baker, another article, you know, again, this America First vaccine will leave us last. We know that. And it gives a few more, uh, a few more statistics. In September, just this past September, Dean Baker basically figured out that if the U.S. was even one month behind in getting a vaccine, say behind China, at the current rate in September of 40,000 infections daily and over 1,000 deaths daily, a one-month delay would mean another 1.2 million infections or 30,000 deaths. If the delay lasts six months, Dean Baker hypothesized that we could be looking at more than 7 million additional infections and approximately 180,000 more deaths, okay? Dean Baker goes on to say, and this was in September, a little before the other article, that Trump chose to privatize vaccine research, and both parties let him. And that's very, very real, okay? Um, we need to produce vaccines for everybody, okay? 
patent monopolies are not in our best interest. And as a government, we can choose to just say no. Patent monopolies for anything, but especially for pharmaceuticals, are not a given. They're not a right. They're something our government chooses to do. It is an explicit government policy. And the theory is that it's going to provide incentives for more research, better research, better innovation. But it's proven to be actually a very bad tool. All right? Because patent monopolies, they do incentivize. But the actual data, the actual proof has shown that patent monopolies incentivize big pharma to make drugs more expensively. And it's this perverse incentive to manufacturers. Okay, they have enormous incentive with a patent monopoly. They can sell for far, far beyond the market price if there's enough demand. They have incentivized, uh, patent monopolies are incentive for big pharma to lie or withhold the truth about the true safety levels and effectiveness of their drugs. And there's plenty of evidence to point to that. Look at the opioid crisis. According to Dean Baker, several major companies paid billions of dollars to settle claims because they, with premeditation, concealed evidence about how addictive opioid painkillers were. But that's what happened. The pandemic should have paved the way for cooperative open source research, but Trump wouldn't allow that, and neither party fought for us. That's the fact. Okay. So we have to break the patent monopoly paradigm. We just do. Uh, in fact, since all patents are they're brought about by our government, and if we took these patents and placed them in the public domain so that any researcher could use them, then that would actually incentivize to create better pharmaceuticals, better vaccines, um, and for, to benefit everybody. And that's what should have been done. But once again, as Dean Baker points out, none of the Republicans, none of the mainstream Democrats, and not even progressive leaders, such as Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, or AOC, said boo about this. They might talk about how uh, pharmaceuticals are too expensive, but they didn't say let's end patent monopolies or let's cut them down. The fact is we want to get vaccine to everybody what we really need to do, since they already have a patent monopoly on the COVID vaccine, is at the very least freeze the patent monopolies on COVID vaccines, like yesterday. Freeze them. And tell the corporate attorneys that work for Big Pharma, you can take it to court, and we'll take it to the court of public opinion, and we'll see who'll win first. Because this is a public emergency, and that is far more important than whether or not you have additional profits. That's it, okay? People are dying because of this, folks. So we're looking at this a little further. And the fact is, we look at this, and Trump took it further than other countries, okay? Trump pulled the United States out of the World Health Organization's COVID-19 vaccines global access, okay? And that was a group of 170 countries, and it was designed to ensure access to developing countries and to allow sharing among wealthy countries, okay? Now, 
We also saw today that a former Trump uh, acolyte and staffer, Matt Pottinger, was on, I believe, Face the Nation. He was talking about how China lied about the vaccine, uh, China lied about COVID, and that was the real problem, not Trump. Again, smokescreen. The real issue is that we need to freeze the patent monopolies on all COVID and related COVID treatments and COVID vaccines so that anybody can be manufactured anywhere with the right equipment and anybody can benefit from it. You know, when we saw members of Congress, including one Congresswoman, she was, I forget her name, but she was 75 and a cancer survivor. And within a few days, she received top-notch treatments. Okay. But the fact is, here, if you're not a member of Congress or a president or a former president or somebody who's very wealthy, if you come down with COVID, you will not get those monoclonal antibody treatments. In fact, you might not even get in the hospital. You, if you are in the hospital, you will be put on a ventilator and pray that you don't die. You know, here in my home state of Missouri, and this isn't just in L.A., it leaked out. It's an anonymous source. But we were told that if patients call 911, especially in St. Louis County, the paramedics were told that if a patient looks or seems like they won't make it, to not pick them up. Seriously, this is really happening, people. This is the real death panels. And so, you know, once again, companies like Moderna, they were paid up for the research costs up front, and they were given a patent monopoly, and that is nonsense. All right, and for the number of vaccines that have actually been distributed to date, you know, basically we've paid for something we have not yet received. Okay, keep in mind too, through the National Institute of Health, we paid for quite a bit of the research that led to the vaccine. The vaccines were not developed that quickly as everybody thinks. They were based on research that had been going on for several years now that was tweaked to come up with this. So, you know, once again, if we froze patent monopolies on COVID treatments and the COVID vaccine, manufacturers anywhere in the world with the proper equipment could begin to prepare facilities for mass production. Wouldn't have to wait to travel across several states. This would actually make vaccines more widely available and cheaper. Okay, but that's not happening. Keep in mind, once again, the National Institute of Health, which is paid for by our tax dollars, spent hundreds of billions of dollars over the last 10 years okay, on biomedical research it was basic research that led to the COVID vaccine. What are we getting for our money? Now, there was another, there was an editorial December 7, 2020, ironically Pearl Harbor Day, and it was an editorial in the New York Times. The title was, One Vaccine's Fast, Suspend Intellectual Property Rights. Otherwise, there won't be enough shots to go around, even in rich countries. And it was written by Achal Prabala Arjun Jayadev and Dean Baker. Mr. Prabala is a public health activist. Mr. Jayadev and Mr. Baker are economists. Okay, so these people know money. So they go on to say, they, they quote the Washington Post. You know, they say, okay, right now the vaccine's going to be rolled out. It's the beginning of the end. We have three coronavirus vaccines. 
Um, there's excellent results, so on and so forth. But they say this isn't the beginning of the end. It's just the beginning of an endless wait. And they put, they're honest about it. December 7th, they say that there are no vaccines, not even to go around the richest countries in the world and forget the poorest ones. And they make a further point, and it's a very important point. The World Trade Organization is a major villain in this situation. And they explain. In the U.S., Britain, and the European Union, as well as others, those group of nations, they were, in December, they were blocking a proposal at the World Trade Organization, okay, that would allow them and the rest of the world to get more of the vaccines and treatments we all need. Okay, and I'm just, I'm just going to read this quote, okay? Quote, um, the United States, Britain, the European Union, among others, are blocking a proposal to World Trade Organization that would allow them and the rest of the world to get more of the vaccines and treatments we all need. The proposal put forth by India and South Africa in October calls on the World Trade Organization to exempt member countries from enforcing some patents, trade secrets, or pharmaceutical monopolies under the organization's agreement on trade-related intellectual property, property rights known as TRIPS, end quote. Okay? So the poorer nations are asking that member countries of the World Trade Organization exempt the enforcement of some of these patents, trade secrets, and monopolies. Okay? And it cites the exceptional circumstances Okay, end quote, that the pandemic brought about. And they argue that, quote, intellectual property protections are currently hindering or potentially hindering timely provisioning of affordable medical products, end quote. Okay, so this, this is a waiver, which would basically say what I'm saying, which is freeze patent monopolies on COVID treatments or any treatments that could work for COVID, and, and uh, COVID vaccines. And the, this waiver would allow World Trade Organization members, WTO member countries, they could change their laws so that companies in each country, in each country could produce basically generics of any COVID vaccine or treatment. Makes perfect sense. But guess what happened? The idea was immediately opposed, as reported by InsideTrade.com. It was opposed by, here, our government, the U.S., the European Union, Britain, Norway, Switzerland, Japan, Canada, Australia, and Brazil, the rich nations. Then it was opposed a second time in another meeting in November, and then uh, the, basically the first week of December, it looks like. And I'm just going to say, this is shameful in its cold-blooded indifference and cruelty. Now, according to this, this editorial, practically 100 nations favor this waiver that would suspend patent monopolies on COVID treatments and vaccines. But a small number of countries, the ones that I read off, United States, European Union, Britain, Norway, Switzerland, Japan, Canada, Australia, and Brazil, small number of nations can, quote, thwart the will of the majority, can say no. In fact, a small number of the powerful nations can basically override not only the will of the majority, but even a supermajority, and the WTO has 164 members. 
Then we go on and Dean Baker and his colleagues uh, deal with what I call the lies of the U.S. trade representative. The U.S. trade rep, this is for the Trump administration, allegedly said, according to the Wall Street Journal, quote, that protecting intellectual property rights and otherwise facilitating incentives for innovation and competition was the best way to ensure the swift delivery of any vaccines and treatments, end quote. Okay. Here's what I say to the trade rep. Really? Prove it. Better yet, I'm demanding some documentation here that shows any veracity to his claim. Because I, I, I'm just calling the U.S. trade rep for Donald Trump. I'm calling him out as a liar. And the, the European Union objections were just as slimy as ours. The EU argued, according to Kian Online, I don't know what that is. Okay, the European Union argued that, quote, there was no indication that intellectual property rights issues have been a genuine barrier in relation to COVID-19-related medicines and technologies, end quote. Oh, yeah? Tell that to type 1 diabetics that can't afford insulin. And the British chime in. Okay. You know, instead of worrying about whether Harry and Meghan are being picked on by the Queen, let's talk about what the British government's really doing. The British uh, mission to the, their, in other words, their committee to, assigned to the WTO agreed, and they characterized the waiver as, quote, an extreme measure to address an unproven problem, end quote. Unproven. Okay, I feel like telling the Prime Minister of Great Britain, the Queen, it's proven, okay? We have cancer patients in Missouri that can't obtain a vaccine, okay? There was a week, about a month ago, where even though the state of Missouri was receiving some 80,000 doses of vaccine a week, there was a week when St. Louis County, that has practically a million residents, only received 962 individual doses of vaccine. Unproven problem? Oh, it's very proven. Let's focus on this instead of Megan and Harry. I know, I think I'm channeling some of the anger of the of the shock jock, but I can't help myself tonight. So Moderna, as well as Pfizer and some of the others, has no right to a patent monopoly. The tech that they used to create a vaccine was paid for in large part by the National Institute of Health with public dollars. And Moderna has, and Moderna, Pfizer, and the others, they haven't paid for the use of our publicly funded research. Not at all. Okay. And it's true, Moderna did pledge that they wouldn't enforce their patents. They wouldn't enforce their, quote, COVID-19 related patents against those making vaccines intended to combat the pandemic, end quote. But Doctors Without Borders pointed out that that's not such a generous offer because there are other types of intellectual property like know-how and trade secrets that are required to develop and produce vaccines. And, and I would add, but just because Moderna chose not to enforce its patents doesn't mean the Moderna may choose to change its corporate mind. Of course they will. Pfizer. Again, Pfizer received a $455 million grant from the German government to develop vaccine. They received nearly $6 billion in purchase commitments from the U.S. and the European Union, AstraZeneca. They benefited from public funding as well while developing it. Uh, they received a total of more than $2 billion from the U.S. and the European Union for research and purchase commitments. 
So it goes on and on and on. Bottom line is these big pharma companies have used at least in large part <coughs> publicly funded research. And we're not getting enough for our dollar. And then they get paid upfront before we receive anything. And then they get paid again. And then they get a patent monopoly. Nice little racket. So once again, we have this nonsense going on. And what Dean Baker and his colleagues have said is that because these vaccines were developed in part based on research that was paid for with, on public dollars, to quote their, their editorial, quote, these vaccines essentially belong to the people, and yet the people are about to pay for them again and with little prospect of getting as many as they need fast enough, end quote. And it's true. It's absolutely true. And we faced these problems before. You know, the World Trade Organization was created in 95, and it, that creation of the WTO also coincided with a surge of HIV and AIDS cases in Africa. And then by 96, new treatments were developed that suddenly made AIDS a manageable condition if you could afford the price of the drugs, which were the tune of a, back then approximately 10000 a year. That's in 1996 dollars. If you couldn't afford it, you just died a savage death. Okay? We have more of this, too, in Brazil, Gilead Sciences. They're the monopoly owner of Sofospivir, so which is basically a breakthrough treatment for hepatitis C, and we've talked about this before. And Gilead has obtained patents for this drug in 19. It hiked the price for Brazilian public agencies from $16 a capsule to $240 a capsule. Think about that. The next time any president, Democrat or Republican, says we've got to take care of TRIPS agreements with the WTO, the World Trade Organization, think about how you can't afford insulin to stay alive. Think about how people can't afford treatment for hepatitis C or AIDS or COVID. Because we need to look at this all over again. We just do. Okay. So... They end this with, um, to quote this editorial, the last paragraph that Dean Baker and his colleagues wrote, quote, um, mounting pressure from poor countries as the WTO should give the governments of rich countries leverage to negotiate with their pharmaceutical companies for cheaper drugs and vaccines worldwide. Leaning on these companies is the right thing to do in the face of a global pandemic is also the best way for the governments of rich countries to take care of their own populations, which in some cases experience more, more severe drug shortages than do people in far less affluent places. Last month, the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal denounced the TRIPS waiver proposal put forward by India and South Africa as a, quote, patent heist, in other words, thievery, adding that, quote, their effort would harm everyone, including the poor. In fact, the effort would help everyone, including the rich, if only the rich could see that, end quote. And the other authors of this, Akal Prabala is the coordinator of the Access IBSA project that campaigns for access to medicines and a fellow of the Shuttleworth Foundation in Bangalore. Arjun Jayadev is a professor of economics at Azim Premji 
excuse me, University in Bangalore and a senior economist at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. And Dean Baker is senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. And it is very, very, um, very important to note that these are economists that are calling out everyone else for being inhumane, and they know money. So we go again back in 2017. We had a specter of what was to come. Fran Quigley wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times that outed the injustice of free market big pharma, how the USA funds research and development, and big pharma still charges outrageous prices for patent-free drugs. Could this happen with COVID? Is this already happening? COVID, some history from 2017. And this was written back in 2017. And um, to put it bluntly, here's what Quigley said. The U.S. government-funded research and development um, of a new vaccine against Zika. The Army paid a French pharmaceutical manufacturer for its development. It's planning to, in 2017, planned to grant exclusive rights to the vaccine to the manufacturer, Sanofi Pasteur, along with paying Sanofi up to $173 million. And Sanofi will be free to charge the U.S. American health care providers and patients any price they wish. Sound familiar? And this was during the Trump administration as well. These exorbitant prices because, once again, patent monopolies. And you have to realize, too, um, we have to look at this and, and, and denounce this, all right? This is um, something that cannot continue on. It just can't. So... Moving on, there's too much information to go through it all. You know, Quigley, Frank Quigley directs the Health and Human Rights Clinic at Indiana University, uh, McKinney School of Law. He is a freelance writer and former news editor. Um, and to and basically, we have to look at this. We're, we're being ripped off again and again and again. So by now, it is... Clear the patent monopolies for big pharma are a major factor in the dangerously slow and unequal distribution of not only COVID vaccine, but also any promising treatments or treatments that are based on secondary uses of other drugs, not specifically looked at for COVID in the beginning part. Um, it's not hyperbole and it's not conjecture. In my home state of Missouri, COVID vaccine distribution has been suspiciously skewed. More sparsely populated communities in rural Missouri have received the lion's share of vaccines, while the population center of St. Louis County is a vaccine desert. Cape Girardeau County, which is ironically the birthplace of Rush Limbaugh, received the highest proportion of vaccine, according to an Associated Press story, enough to inoculate some 54.2% of the people there, while St. Louis County received enough thus far to inoculate 8.6%. So we're in a bidding war for vaccines in large part due to patent monopolies. Only these companies, they create, they're the only ones that can legally create the vaccine. So let's talk about actual vaccine distribution. It's been widely reported that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis used vaccine as a political weapon against anyone who dared to criticize his majesty. DeSantis, he taunted Floridians and non-wealthy enclaves with punishment. If they questioned his motives when he made a certain affluent zip code a privileged recipient, while well, he was going to take his ball and his bat and his vaccine and go home and pout. 
every major news outlet ran the story. Yet we have another Republican governor who is also a Trump acolyte. Another Republican governor, a Trump acolyte, who welcomed the likes of Sheriff Arpaio with open arms, who has also very questionable vaccine distribution practices. And that's in my home state of Missouri, Governor Mike Parsons. I'm not going to make any accusations. I'm going to bring about some some, uh, observations and pointed questions. So frankly, the story went into the media version of the you know, the, the Associated Press ran the story, no other major outlets. It just went into the media version of the old dead letter department, and I want to know why. So the story began, the AP story, Associated Press, began with a Demo- when a Democratic state senator, Jill Shoup, made an inquiry into vaccine dis- distribution discrepancies between rural and sparsely populated areas in Missouri and the population center of St. Louis County. And so the AP story, it ran the 20th, so it ran yesterday titled Some Elderly Sick Louisans Travel for Vaccine. And I was complaining before. I know of people in Missouri that are having to make a round trip of 500 miles in the dead of winter on dangerous roads to obtain a vaccine. The Post-Dispatch reported on this as well. Um, You know, so Democratic State Senator Jill Shoup, she received some data from the State Health Department showing that up through the week of February 1st, enough doses were shipped statewide to begin vaccinating 10.4% of the population. This would be proportionally. But a dozen counties outside St. Louis got enough to give doses uh, to vaccinate 20% of their population or more, and Cape Girardeau County had enough that week to vaccinate 54.2%. Now, St. Louis County is the largest county in Missouri with practically a million residents. Cape Girardeau has some 78,000 residents, roughly, the county that is. Yeah. St. Louis County has practically a million residents, and they received enough vaccine to vaccinate that week some 8.6% of their population. And before the week of February 15th, St. Louis County Department of Public Health had gone three weeks without receiving any vaccine. And whatever doses they received were shared from hospitals. So there's a local doctor, Dr. Elizabeth Bergamini, who really you know, is a, uh, a good Samaritan. They called her a vaccine hunter. Um, she's a pediatrician and she helps St. Louis residents. She's a vaccine hunter, find vaccine appointments. She's helped some 50 people navigate these online registrations. She's driven them for hours to Hannibal, Rolla, Potosi, all these outstate areas that, of course, the Republican governor would like that are, one, totally white, and they're Trump country. Whereas St. Louis County has, that's where most communities, St. Louis and St. Louis County are where most of the communities of color reside, as well as Democrats. The coincidence is a little bit much. Now, Governor Mike Parson's office, they're just insisting that, no, those doses have been fairly distributed. And they claim that some 35% of the state's shipments have gone to the St. Louis region, region, which would be proportional to the population. And they responded to uh, State Senator Jill Shoup's letter 
Parsons spokeswoman, a woman named Kelly Jones, wrote in an email, quote, not every registered vaccinator will receive vaccine shipments every week because simply we're not allotted enough vaccines to distribute the minimum shipment amounts to every eligible Missouri vaccinator every week, end quote. Okay, maybe. But I still have some additional questions. Okay. Yeah. And I sent an email to the Department of Health's uh, executive that handles that for Dr. Randall Williams. He's the head of public health in Missouri. So I looked at this and I said, after reviewing the data, there appear to be major disparities regarding the receipt of COVID vaccine in Missouri. And I'm aware that government spokesperson claims the difference is due to an unpredictable number of doses received weekly, but that just doesn't explain the vast disparity in population numbers when compared to actual doses sent to each county. Not to mention the fact that a delay of one, two, or three weeks, or even a whole month, is only going to exacerbate things far worse. Cape Girardeau County, in a week where the state received enough doses of vaccine that if it had been fairly distributed, would inoculate some 10.4% of each county's population. That week, Cape Girardeau County, the home of the birthplace of Rush Limbaugh, received enough inoculations to protect approximately 54% of their population. In St. Louis, it was 8.6%. When you look at those population numbers, the discrepancy just doesn't jive with the excuses given by the governor's office, at least not in my opinion, and the discrepancies obscene. Cape Girardeau County has, I looked it up, but the U.S. Census Bureau in 2019 said that Cape Girardeau County has 78,871 people. The same U.S. Census Bureau numbers from 2019 said St. Louis County has 996,919 people. So even when you factor in those population differences, the disparity is far too vast to attribute this inequity to anything but was this premeditated misdirection? Was it? St. Louis City and County have become vaccine deserts. And this is according to reports from physicians at multiple hospitals. Now, adding to this dismal picture is the fact that Governor Parsons, to add insult to injury, refuses to implement and enforce a statewide mask mandate. So I have some questions for Governor Parsons. How did the governor decide which counties receive vaccines and what amount they receive? Please do not tell me that the individual health departments determine this. As the medical communities clearly stated, the determination comes directly from the governor's office. Is the governor using vaccine distribution discrepancies as a way to punish political opponents? I, I could tap dance around this point, but that just wastes time. The question has to be asked. Also, what are the official mechanisms for accountability and transparency that have been established for vaccine distribution? Where are they, where are they published? Which public officials help create these mechanisms and what are their credentials? And also, why is it that some lawmakers, such as Missouri State Senator Jill Shoup from St. Louis County, are having such difficulty accessing these accountability and transparency guidelines? I'm not directly accusing Governor Parsons of anything. I'm pointing out that there is a lack of meaningful and accessible accountability and transparency mechanisms. And I'm po posing, admittedly, some very damning questions 
of Governor Parsons. It should also be mentioned that here in Missouri, we have a director of public health, Dr. Randall Williams, with a troubled history from his last post in North Carolina. And while you can't blame somebody's past behavior and hold against them forever, past behavior and past records do often portend to their future decision-making. Dr. Randall Williams came to us from his last post in North Carolina. And it seems like Dr. Williams has a problem protecting public health from wealthy polluters and other powerful interests. It should, all be, it should also be mentioned that Dr. Randall Williams, the head of public health in Missouri, is by trade an OBGYN, an obstetrician gynecologist. I do not understand why an OBGYN is head of public health unless the only thing you're interested in are lady parts and keeping them from access to, access to birth control. Okay, if anything, the director of public health should be an expert in epidemiology, just my opinion. So again, the Associated Press and PBS as well, they ran a story about how health director in North Carolina, Randall, Dr. Randall Williams, before he came to Missouri, covered up cancer-causing water in North Carolina. He was accused of acting unethically and possibly illegally because he told residents that live near Duke Energy coal ash pits, that their well water was safe to drink, even though it was contaminated with a chemical known to cause cancer. And that was according to a state toxicologist, and the man's name is Ken Rudo. He has a PhD, and he said that in sworn testimony on the AP obtained the full 220-page deposition given by toxicologist Ken Rudo regarding his boss, then North Carolina State Public Health Director, Dr. Randall Williams who's now in charge of taking care of us here in Missouri, okay? So the water in North Carolina from the coal ash was contaminated with something called hexavalent chromium, and it was at levels many times higher than even what the EPA said was safe. Hexavalent chromium has been linked to, linked to cancer, okay? It is listed as a carcinogen, all right? It's known to cause lung, lung cancer when inhaled. The US EPA said it's likely to be carcinogenic, okay? And once again, um, you know, in 2015, North Carolina officials, they sent letters to the owners of 330 well, water wells near Duke Energy's coal burning plant. The letter said the well water was too contaminated with heavy metals, vanadium and hexavalent chromium to use, okay? Um, anyway, Williams was then in charge of public health in North Carolina, and after the warning letters were sent, uh, Williams questioned whether the one in the, whether the standard was too strict, and you know he countermanded that earlier decision and told people that no, it was safe. In fact, Dr. Williams signed the letters himself that reversed the decision. That's who is in charge of public health here in Missouri. And, that, and, and that's really frightening. Okay. We have, again, more COVID. The Columbian Missourian reported that there was a consulting firm named Delawitt Consulting that was hired um, by Missouri State Vaccination Team to strategize, quote, distribution efforts and make them as equitable as possible, okay? 
and they were told to try and help identify vaccine deserts. Okay. And as of January 18th, the data showed that Boonville, Owensville, and Haiti were isolated vaccine deserts. But since then, those deserts have dissipated. But they also identified there were vaccine deserts in metropolitan areas, both in St. Louis and Kansas City. I would say that it's far worse than what they were saying. Okay. So that's what we have now. COVID, COVID, and more COVID. We will be talking more about what's happening uh, with these governors controlling the distribution of COVID vaccines. I would maintain that control of COVID vaccine distribution, that that power should be taken away from the nation's governors, that they can't be trusted, especially GOP governors, and that it should be centralized through the feds and through the actual medical professionals. Just should. So we're going to be looking into that story about Governor Parsons more and more as more evidence comes forth. So now, my thoughts on the passing of Radio Shock Jock and what I'll call national disgrace, Rush Limbaugh. I ran this in my own show, EJR, the Environmental Justice Report, just this past week. We do an occasional segment called Environmental Heroes, Zeros are Just Plain Villains. You can guess which category Rush fell into. Okay. Not only was Rush Limbaugh an environmental villain, he was a villain across the board, especially on racism and misogyny. Now Rush has passed away from complications of cancer. And I looked at this article that Bob Moser wrote for Rolling Stone. <coughs> excuse me. And Roser, excuse me, Moser wrote that Limbaugh among other things, corrupted the GOP. I agree with just about everything Moser said in his article, but I would disagree at that point. I don't think that that Limbaugh corrupted the GOP. I believe that Limbaugh brought all the ugliness of the GOP to the surface. Instead of disguising it with Bill Buckley and his faux sophistication and his naughty little accent, they just went full frontal, just like full frontal uh, nudity. This was the full frontal nudity of the true ugliness of the GOP. I never bought that compassionate conservatism bullshit. The GOP's always been the party of the rich and the bigoted. And it has to be that because the GOP has nothing else to offer. The fact is, the GOP is about conserving all the money and all the power for the very rich, period. They have nothing to offer the average citizen. So how do they get reelected? The only way they can do this is, one, they push enormous, massive voter suppression, and then they push the racism and the sexism buttons, period. That's all they got. But I would also say that Rush Limbaugh should get credit for one more thing. He laid the groundwork for Trumpism. In fact, you could argue that Rush Limbaugh was Fox before Fox was Fox. So Moser goes into this. He calls him the great bloviator, so on and so forth. And I'm looking at this because I'm looking at some of the more ignorant things that Rush Limbaugh said. And it's not hard to imagine, all right? 
Limbaugh really did peddle lies. He peddled lies. He peddled propaganda. And he made quite a fortune for himself in the process to the tune of some $600 million. And so when I posted on Facebook that I was glad he was dead, happy, I heard from some white liberal men that I shouldn't do that, that we're better than that. And I was admonished for it. But the fact is, we're being honest. All right, when somebody's been abused, and clearly communities of color and women have been abused horribly, as well as the LGBTQ communities and so on, after you're abused, it is quite human to be glad your abuser is gone, or at least one of them. And I don't believe in appeasing our would-be abusers. doesn't work. So Uncle Rush, as, as Moser called him, he just went off, all right? He compared the Capitol Hill insurrection to the American Revolution, okay? He dismissed calls to end the violence after a mob hit Capitol building, um, you know, once again, you know, he called the first woman of color, namely Vice President Kamala Harris, a hoe and a mattress. He painted Trump, who was really a lunatic, as some sort of heroic savior. And it goes on and on and on. So how did someone like Rush Limbaugh get away with all this nonsense? Well, here's the problem. When President Ronald Reagan abolished the Fairness Doctrine, that led to the age of Rush and then the age of Fox. Now, the Fairness Doctrine, for those of you too young to remember, had been in existence since 1949, and it required broadcasters to present, ironically, fair and balanced news. We know Fox called it that, but truly fair and balanced, because it included a demand. They had to provide equal time for both sides. You know, as a child, I remember in St. Louis, the local uh, – the local affiliates for CBS and NBC and ABC, they had a few minutes at the end of each news, uh, news um, section where people, just ordinary people, could have their say on air. But once the Fairness Doctrine was gone, it was open season. So once again, Rush complained about the PC police because you know, according to Moser, it, quote, stifled white Americans' right to openly express their bigotries and assert their various forms of supremacy, end quote. And it's true. You know, some of the garbage that, went through Rush, that came through Russia's mouth was the following, quote, have you noticed that every mugshot looks like Jesse Jackson or gay bashing, AIDS updates where he, Rush introduced these AIDS app updates by the song, quote, I'll never love this way again. And then misogyny, of course. To quote Rush, I love the women's movement, especially when walking behind it. Okay. The thing is this. Rush wasn't selling any sort of political ideology or ideas. He was, Moser's right. He was selling attitudes. Okay. He was selling, as Moser put it, the freedom to offend. Or as Moser put it again, quote, the right to assert your privilege without guilt or embarrassment. Basically, Rush Limbaugh went on air for several hours a day, and he, he was Rush. He performed like the overage adolescent he was, 
who basically insulted anyone that challenged his white Christian male privilege. Period. End of story. And now he's dead. And I really, I'm going to tell you right now, I am not sorry that I said I'm happy he's dead. I am genuinely happy. I don't feel like extending any condolences to his family because as far as I'm concerned, as Rush peddled lies and propaganda and incited what is only what can only be called a lynch mob mentality to attack the rest of us, his family, Rush's family, benefited to the tune of some $600 million. If anything, his family owes the nation, those of us who are not, who are not Rush's favorite group, owes us an apology. And yes, Limbaugh did pave the way for President Trump. Furthermore, recently, Rush really was a purveyor of COVID denial, and it contributed to more COVID deaths. Okay? He was, according to Moser, quote, the leader of the parade of COVID-19 denial and deflection. And this is a quote directly from, from Rush. Quote, the coronavirus is the common cold, folks. Okay? Two days later, he went on to say, quote, Drudge had a screaming headlight, flight attendant wearing LAX test positive. Okay? And then Limbaugh, you know, just really got into it and said, oh, my God, 58 cases. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. End quote. He peddled the lie that COVID wasn't dangerous. He peddled the lie that masking makes you a wuss. He peddled the lie that mask wearing was a symbol of fear. Okay? To quote Rush again, quote, this isn't who we are, folks. This cowering and fearful and almost giving up in the face of his enemy, COVID-19, so much of the way we're dealing with this is unprecedented and it's un-American. Okay? So forget about the staged overrunning of hospitals. Uh, pay no heed to Dr. Anthony Fauci, that known Hillary Clinton sympathizer working, rid of get, working to get rid of Donald Trump. Don't go around looking like a mask-wearing freak. Instead, urge yourself for battle. Rush went on to say, quote, folks, I'm going to tell you these next four months are going to be a veritable war like we have not seen. The American left and the Democratic Party is going to do its best to keep this economy shut down, to extend and expand that shutdown and blow up their own country's jobs just to ensure that Trump loses. End quote. Rush also said that death counts were inflated, quote, as we know, and quote, in states Trump needs to win, end quote. Okay. And Trump went on to say that the supposed pandemic was basically created or concocted to allow states to expand mail-in voting and, quote, flood the system with fake ballots, fake votes, end quote. Okay. So Rush Limbaugh is one of the people that had massive audiences that pushed COVID-19 denial that encouraged people not to mask. I know why Governor Mike Parsons here in Missouri won't implement or enforce a mask mandate statewide because he knows that the Trump voters that, that, that support him as well, they were listening to Rush. And he is so frightened of them that he won't do what constitutes sound medical protocols. Rush Limbaugh didn't care if more people died. 
He died a few days ago. Did he care that practically 500, now 500,000 of his fellow Americans died needlessly? Of course not. But he certainly enjoyed the, the spotlight, and he enjoyed that $600 million over a lifetime that he earned. He didn't deserve the Medal of Freedom. What he deserved was to be sued for slander, libel, and defamation of character. And frankly, even though he's gone, his estate should be sued for that. This disinformation, it's not disinformation. It is lying. That's what Rush Limbaugh peddled, lies. And they were lies that made white, bigoted Christian males feel good about their bigotry. Because God forbid they should be made to feel badly when they commit acts of what can only be called social violence. Okay? When Russia's followers, like Trump's followers, behave like Nazis, then they deserve the moniker of Nazi. No doubt about it. And now we're stuck with this. Like I said, Rush Limbaugh was an overaged adolescent. For years, he denied the dangers of smoking, even though it was lung cancer that did him in. In fact, he was quoted as saying, quote, I want a medal for smoking cigars, end quote. And now we're stuck with the damage the Rush helped cause to some of my fellow progressives that are uncomfortable, that those of us, especially from communities of color, racial minorities and women, are gleeful, happy that Rush is dead. I would tell those white male progressives, get over it. Because telling us not to express ourselves, telling us to censor ourselves after we've been abused all this time is akin to telling a rapist they can't express satisfaction if they're raped. I'm, I'm sorry. It's akin to telling a rape victim that they can't feel satisfaction when the rapist is put behind bars. It's akin to telling a Holocaust survivor that they can't be happy that Nazis have been hunted down and incarcerated or executed. Until you've walked in our shoes, you don't have any right to tell us that we can't express ourselves. I didn't wish death on Rush, but yes, I'm happy he's gone. And I won't take it back. So, that's our story for tonight. We're waiting for my dear friend Rick Spizak to call in so he can share some of the, the good news with us. And I'm hoping that all of you felt comfortable with me tonight, um, anchoring this. <laughs> I'm not used to it, but we're going to be covering more of this. Okay, We're going to be talking more about COVID, more about an equitable distribution of vaccines, inequitable distribution and denial of effective COVID treatments, and so on and so forth. And we're going to be holding public officials accountable. And here is my friend, Rick. Uh, that's live. How do I do this? Hello there. I hope I do. How Hi. are you, Janine? I'm fine, Rick. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad you're here. Um, so we've been talking about all things covid and then I was talking about how 
I'm happy Russia's dead. <laughs> I don't care. Um, well, you know, it, it's hard to summon up a crocodile tear when someone <laughs> so mean, so vicious uh, mm-hmm. has passed. Um, if you have a minute, I would love to tell my little Rush Limbaugh story. Go ahead. you got the floor. Well, it starts out real simple. Uh, I grew up in a family of independent thinkers. Uh, the last thing in the world we wanted to hear was do it this way. We were independent thinkers. We did it our way. And I found mm-hmm. myself completely floored when one of my relatives, a very close one, said to me, well, I'm a ditto head. And I said, a ditto head? What the hell is a ditto head? He said, well, you see, everything that Rush Limbaugh says, ditto. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, I've never seen the man. I've never heard his show. But from everything I've heard, the man is a vicious, you know, immoral a woman hater, uh, African American mm-hmm. hater, racist, mm-hmm. uh, anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. there's just everything bad about this guy. How could you possibly say that everything he says is just grand by you? Do you really buy into that? And he said, "Rick, Rick, listen, you're just listening to the negative liberal media. You need to listen to him for yourself." And I said, "Well, I'll tell you, I've, I've never done it." Everything I've heard told me not to listen, not to waste my time. But I'll tell you what. Mm-hmm. I try to give everybody a fair shake. I used to sure. listen to the Buckley-Gore-Vidal debates. I think sure. that that honest, moral, upright conservatism has some things mm-hmm. to say. But mm-hmm. and, and I've listened plenty to real conservatives, not to fascists, mm-hmm. not to anti-Semites, not to racists. But I will mm-hmm. listen to alt-now conservatives. Because once mm-hmm. upon a time, conservative also meant conservation. And, right. and I like conservation. <laughs> right. So I decided next time I had a spare minute, I was going to sit down. I was going to give this guy a listen. And I was going to mm-hmm. try in my best progressive fashion to give an honest listen, right? So mm-hmm. I turn over to the TV knob. I turn into Rush Limbaugh's mm-hmm. show. And I happen to tune in at that infamous hysterically awful, venal comment of his when he put up a picture of Hillary and Bill Clinton's daughter Mm -hmm. and proceeded to tell the world how he didn't find her attractive. Well, first off, who the hell should be thinking about a preteen as attractive anyway? And number two, if that's the way you attack your political enemies, if that's your shot, boy, you have no call on my respect whatsoever. And I I did tough it out. I listened for about five minutes and this (laughs) man proceeded to give the worst insults about Mm -hmm. aesthetic values to a child, a child of his political foes. And, and that said to me all I ever needed to say about right. this man. And, and from everything I've heard since, it's just worse. So, yep. you know, I, I, I hear those good people, those wonderful, well-intentioned people say, you know, you don't speak ill of the dead. If you can't say anything good about somebody, um, don't say anything. But, you know, 
I'm afraid when an evil, wicked person, and I, I don't use those terms regularly. I, you know, I don't, I'm not really a heaven and hell kind of guy, but the man right. was a mean spirited SOB. Now, I have mm-hmm. met my fair share of right wingers who did it mm-hmm. as an act, who, you know, who this was just a pose. It was a job. Mm-hmm. They were doing, you know, they espoused things that they had no belief in. They were just very cynical. And, and I understand it. I think it's despicable, but I understand it. Right. But I think there's every reason to believe that this man was the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I, I honestly believe, too, I mean, he was an overaged adolescent, made a lot of money off of this. I think he wanted to be an entertainer and, you know, in terms of any artistry, lacked the true talent. So he went to the lowest common denominator. And, you know, this is high school stuff. You know, this is, you know, when, when a high school boy is feeling insecure and they want to insult him, they say, you're ugly. And that's what they did. They yeah. attacking, what, 12-year-old Chelsea Clinton, a little girl, seriously, um, you know, and once again, he peddled in lies. And the fact is, he gave permission for these white men to openly express their resentment and their hatred of what I'll call what they perceive to be uppity minorities and uppity women. And you know, I well, you know I've lived in Missouri my whole life, and there's nothing meaner than a bigot when they think the object of their bigotry is being, quote, uppity. Yeah, I, you yeah. know, there's, it's not hard to understand why him and Trump got along so well. You know, it's not so hard to understand why his ranting, his uh, arguments, his terrible statements appealed to racists. Um Right. You know, that even just the term uppity, and I understand he tried to fudge that, well, it wasn't about an uppity Negro. It was just uppity, uh, you know, an academic pose or something. Mm-hmm. You know what? Lack of respect for learning, that's that's a death trip. It's just a yeah. death trip. And, yeah. you know, that he peddled the, the anti-COVID stuff, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the anti-Obama stuff, the anti, right. you know, Clinton's children. Are you kidding? Right, right. You know, a little girl. It's kind of like if you have to use that, then then you have just stated how morally bankrupt you are, and I don't I don't care to listen. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's exactly right. And you know, the fact is, he was allowed to do this for decades, and you know, even as a state, I think deserves to be sued. He peddled in slander, libel, and defamation. Period. End of story. Yeah. And I, I hope some groups get together and sue them out of existence. Um, the fact is that this has been going on, and the term uppity, especially here in the Midwest, it, the idea is that you are a person from a group that's determined by the power structure to be lower than what comes out of a dog's ass. And how dare you want to be treated like a human being? It's that evil. And um, Well, you know, and, and, and the, the whole you know, underplaying COVID during a crisis? Seriously? You know, and and look, I, I do believe there are some people in the Republican Party who knew better, who, who who really were embarrassed by these guys. But you know what? If you don't do anything, you empower them. You you let them run wild. And that that's there's no call for that. That's unconscionable. Right. It is. And it's you know, once again, um 
you know, the other night I watched um, on, I streamed the old movie Nine to Five. Love the movie. Uh-huh. I remember when I first saw it because, you know, I was, okay, I'm 61 now. I was like 20 when it ran. And um, every woman in the audience was howling, especially on the line that Dolly Parton had where, you know, this boss of hers was, you know, basically lascivious and trying to, you know, practically rape her. And she said, I got a gun in my purse. If you don't stop, I'm going to turn you from a rooster into a hen. And every woman <laughs> in the audience was howling. The guys were sitting there looking very nervous because for too long, the power structure of white Christian men has controlled everything. And this, they, they didn't like being called on it. You know, you, you, the pattern of abuse only continues if those are, you know, we have to, it, it's, it's, a, it's a cycle. And that was something where, you know, the guy said something similar, like, well, it's not that bad. Well, I remember back in 1980, yeah, it was that bad. Okay? It, it truly was. And I think that part of the problem, and I said it earlier too, is that the Republican Party has nothing else to offer. They have to sow division because they're not offering people anything in the way of fiscal policies that would help you create a good life for yourself. And so they pushed this, you know, this idea that we're going to pit one group against another. And then it goes into this whole, a lot of this biblical stuff where, you know, even in my own faith, you you know, I, I fight with the Orthodox all the time because I won't accept a subservient position. I refuse. And, um, you know, what was happening on Facebook was, you know, being admonished and saying you shouldn't say things like that and say you're happy that he's dead. Well, you know what? When I asked some of these same pro- progressive men, would you say the same thing to a rape victim or somebody who survived the Holocaust? Then there was dead silence. And I think that until we have something like South Africa did, which like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh-huh. And we're never going to, we're going to keep making the same mistakes, all right, because it's one of those things we keep shoveling it under the rug. It just builds. It just does. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it's it just, I was stunned by these progressive men, some of which, you know, they were there for Black Lives Matter. They were there for Ferguson. They risked arrest. And I said, look, some of you are really great people. Don't get me wrong. You're very appreciated. But at the end of the day, you chose to do those things. And at the end of the day, as a white man, you can also choose to walk away, whereas communities of color and women cannot. That's right. And, that, and, and we just we have to deal with this. We just do. And um, I felt like I had to speak out about this, all right? The women were very loud about it. Um, and, you know, just the idea, how would those men have felt if the remarks, for instance, that you talked about, about Chelsea Clinton when she was a little girl, who attacks a child, yeah. a little girl? And how would they have felt if that had been their daughter yeah. being attacked? Absolutely. Okay. That, that's just inexcusable. And he was a foul person, but he served a purpose. He pushed propaganda. And that's what they were looking for. And we have to be truth tellers. We have to challenge them and challenge their propaganda every step of the way, which is why 
even though it pains me to say this, when there are progressives that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, yeah, I'm going to call them on it because we have to. We have well, to be you know, I think you're absolutely right, and it seems to me that part of our fight has to be return to a fairness doctrine. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, none of us who thought for two seconds about what was going on in right-wing radio thought that there'll be no hell to pay at the end of this. You know, we right. knew that if you let this right-wing propaganda fill the airwaves mm-hmm. with no response, with no right. limitations, these guys own all these TV stations, all these radio stations, right. you think there won't be hell to pay from this crap? And and now what we've got, right. we've got, you know, things like the Oath Keepers and the uh, right. you know, the long, long list of right-wing kooks, heavily armed right-wing kooks, yeah. we might add, you know, that, right. that are up to, you know, if they had their way, that they, you know, thank God, we they didn't have any better leaders. They had the chicken shit, Trump, right. who said he was going with them. Can you imagine if someone had gone there with enough wit yeah. and enough scumph to, to lead that rabble there? It could oh, have been mayhem. mayhem. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And it could still happen again unless Biden and the Democrats start becoming bold about policy measures and giving relief to the average American person because these people are lost. Um, you know, I, I live a few miles away from the local leader of the Proud Boys, I found out. And he oh lives God. in a, he rents a house. He rents a house within walking distance of the local Jewish community center. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so what they did in D.C., none of that surprised me. Here in, you know, in the Midwest, they love to talk, you know, like they'll talk about, Democrats talk about when Mike Parsons got in office, for instance, how he was, you know, for a Republican, a nice guy, and they referred to him as a good old boy. But good old boy is just Midwestern ah, ah. code. It's just Midwestern code for a nasty bigot, kind of the Midwestern version of Southern charm, but underneath the surface, it's a neo-Nazi. End of story. And, um, you know, we can't appease these people. Um, You know, I lost family. I found out in the Holocaust. We thought everyone got out. They didn't. And, you know, when it was happening there, uh, a lot of Jews just, they tried appeasement. Appeasement doesn't work. You have to stand up to these people. They see appeasement as weakness because you can't assume that the opposition has a mature psychology. They do not. You have to deal. You have to bring. You have to deal with them the way they are, at the present time. But I'm so glad you joined me. Um, I've never anchored before, and it was a little scary. <laughs> you did it really splendidly. Was. I've been oh, listening. Thank you. you did marvelous. Oh, it was any time, dear. You are captain of the ship, my dear, and I salute you. <laughs> I was scared. I just put it together really fast, and um, you know we're just we want work to get better. Um, I've got to do my own show too, but thank you for the opportunity. Um, you guys are wonderful. And we just have a few, we have like a minute and 37, 36 seconds. Is there anything else you want to say, Rick? No, I just want to say bravo, my dear. You've done a wonderful show. Knock them dead. Thank you, my friend. All righty. So thank you. Good night. And what we're going to say right now is good night to everybody. 
This has been Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio with Rick Spizak, Brooke Hines, and myself, Janine Moloff. Uh, we will be back next week. Brooke will be on the men, and we're going to keep you informed. We're going to keep you informed, and we're going to keep fighting the good fight. Good night, and God bless.